Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, I'll talk with U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown about the events Wednesday at the U.S. Capitol building and his thoughts on President Trump's future. Then a few minutes of comments from Governor Mike DeWine this week about what happened. We'll also present Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan's comments as he objected to the confirmation of electoral votes that made Joe Biden officially the president-elect. That's in the first 20 minutes. And then courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, Tracy Townsend has lots of information about the pandemic and the vaccine and about the effort to get kids back into the classrooms as well as a discussion with Congresswoman Joyce Beatty of Columbus, who is the new chair of the Congressional Black Caucus in Washington. And in about 40 minutes, I'll talk with Rob Sexton with the Buckeye Firearms Association. First up on Columbus Perspective, on Friday, just two days after the events at the U.S. Capitol, I talked with U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown, Ohio Democrat. Tell us uh, your thoughts on, on what the president should do or what should happen. I, I think that the vice president uh, and the president's cabinet should meet and invoke the 25th Amendment and remove him from office. Not, not as punishment for what he's done, although he deserves that, but should remove him from office because of what he might do in the next 10 days. And I spent five, almost five hours in a room with 75 senators as, as the Capitol, that's the insurrection and the coup d'etat was attempted at the Capitol. And there is great concern, even among people who have been absolute Trump supporters, who have done whatever he's told them to do for four years, who are afraid of what he might do, and who absolutely know this attack on the Capitol, this insurrection was because of the president's behavior, his lies, his rhetoric, his urging them on to go to the Capitol. So um, there's, there is great concern among a whole lot of people about what he might do uh, in, the, in the next 10 days. That's why I'm hopeful that the Senate, that the, um, vice, that the vice president and the cabinet will meet and remove him from office. If that does not happen and the House wants to pursue impeachment, will they defer to what uh, President-elect Biden wants? No, I think they will do whatever they think they should do. I don't think Biden has anything to do with this. I, I, um, I mean, I can't believe I would even consider that um, the 25th Amendment should be invoked in this country. I thought, I mean, I, I was no fan of George Bush uh, Jr. about he lied about the Iraq War, all the things he did on a number of things. But I never would have thought that the, that the, he should be removed by the 25th Amendment. Um, but I do now, again, not for punishment for this president, but to stop what can happen. And if impeachment, if they don't do that and the House considers impeachment, um, we'll all return to Washington and, and, and do that, even though it's it would only be removing him from office for a few days. It might be something we need to do. As we speak, a couple of cabinet members have resigned. There's word today that a bunch of people with the FAA are stepping down. Could a cascade of resignations cause Trump to step down on his own? Uh, no, Trump will never step down on his own. I could not imagine that. That would be, I mean, he hates the thought of losing. He's lost the election. He lost his veto override on the defense bill. Um, he hates that. He's, he's not going to leave. I, I think the cabinet doing that tells you what, what they think. I wish that they would stay um, in the cabinet and vote and, and be part of a vote to remove him from office. I think they took the easy way out here. But that's what I'd expect from Betsy DeVos, to take the, the, the cowardly way out rather than the I love my country way out. 
if uh, the House does impeach, if it goes in that direction, would there be more than just Mitt Romney on the Republican side that would look at this closer? From my conversations with my um, Republican Senate colleagues, and I talked to maybe two dozen of them last week or this week when we were all um, sequestered, whatever, uh, in this one room, uh, waiting for the sign that we could go back to the floor and finish our, our business. There's there's great unhappiness and angst and anger at this president um, from both parties. And I, I don't know if any of them have the courage to turn to, to, to expel a Republican president. They have almost every single Republican in the House and Senate. I mean, literally almost every single one, except with the, with the exception of the courage of Mitt Romney, have time after time after time just turned aside or remained out, or remained silent or encouraged the president's rhetoric uh, and and the comments he's made. So um, I have no way of predicting if they finally have grown backbones that they would actually remove this president, which, again, not not to punish him. I mean, history is going to punish Donald Trump. There's no question not to punish him, but to protect the country for the next few days from his doing something that could be even worse than what happened this week. And last question, Senator, about the inauguration. Are you uh, concerned about how that's going to come off and whether there might be more violence? I heard from many of my colleagues who were on airplanes on the way back to their states that they were sitting near some of these rioters that had, that had breached the Capitol and caused the insurrection or the attempted coup d'etat. And a number of them were saying, they haven't seen anything yet. Wait till January 20th, and this time we'll have guns. I mean, those were some of the comments that, that my colleagues heard. I didn't hear those comments. I've not traveled, but I've been around people that were, that were rioters. But um, that, that means that the police have to be ready uh, to, to you know, be more ready than they were this time. Again, not, not because of rank-and-file officers, police officers, law enforcement people, because the leadership of the of the Senate and the leadership at the White House and the leadership in these um, these security agencies weren't doing their jobs. Senator Sherrod Brown, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks. See ya. Hello, I'm Todd Markowitz, Vice President and General Manager of Radio Ohio, which owns 97.1 The Fan. We're an equal opportunity employer dedicated to providing broad outreach efforts regarding job vacancies within our company. We seek the help of local organizations in referring qualified applicants. Organizations that wish to receive our vacancy information should send their request to the attention of Human Resources, Radio Ohio, 770 Twin Rivers Drive, Columbus, 43215. If you'd like to view our current job openings, please visit our website at 971thefan.com and thanks for listening. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. The day after the U.S. Capitol was stormed, Governor Mike DeWine talked about it during his coronavirus update. Here's about six minutes of Governor Mike DeWine. Any day when Americans saw on their TV the view of the Senate chamber occupied by a mob, any day when they would have seen on their screen a mob storming into the Capitol, through the rotunda, into the Senate chamber, into the House chamber and occupying it would have been a horrible, horrible day. But what was going on in the Capitol when the mob did that makes it a direct attack on the Constitution, on everything that we hold dear. For what was going on at that moment, that very moment, was the process of counting the votes of the President of the United States a solemn process, a process prescribed by law, 
and carried out with great dignity every four years. That fact made this a horribly tragic day. As I'm sure most Americans were doing, Fran and I were focused on our TV screen, watching the images of the Capitol, really in, in disbelief and in shock. We tried to comprehend what was going on, tried to make some sense of it. And we saw an interview with constitutional scholar Jonathan Turley. Turley said something that Fran and I thought was very, very apt, very correct, and something that we all need to think about. And I'll quote, what we're seeing is chilling for us because it shows a crisis of faith. That is what the Constitution is. It's a leap of faith that we all take together. The people who scale the walls have lost their faith. And the question for our country is, how much of America is now faithless? Faith, faith in our Constitution, faith in the rule of law. That faith has gotten us through a lot of tough times. This faith in the Constitution, faith in the rule of law is what binds us together. We are a nation whose peoples are drawn from all over the world, who have in common, not a common ancestry for all of us, not a common creed, not a common race, but rather a faith, a faith in our country, a faith in our Constitution, a faith in our system of justice. We are truly bound together by that. We are truly bound together by a belief in a basic core set of values. In 2001, we watched as Vice President Al Gore, as Vice President, after an election that had gone all the way, the United States Supreme Court declared George W. Bush to be President of the United States. Now, I imagine that to this day, Gore and many other Americans still believe that he won. Yet, peaceful transfer of power took place nonetheless. Theodore White, in his landmark book, The Making of the President, 1960, described America's success in transferring, transferring power peacefully this way. Heroes and philosophers, brave men and vile, have since Rome and Athens tried to make this particular manner of transfer of power work effectively. No people have succeeded at it better or over a longer period of time than the Americans. Vice President Pence, senators, House members, once again carried out their solemn duty and made the system work in spite of what had occurred earlier in the day. When thugs stormed our Capitol building, desecrating, defiling not only the structure itself, but the ideals that bind us together as Americans. They made it work. They did their job. What happened was devastating. It was despicable. But in spite of the violent attempts to stop our democratic process, to stop an election, what happened when our vice president and Congress returned to the Capitol was a sign of great strength and unity and hope. The system worked. The Constitution held. Congress and the vice president were not deterred in carrying out their constitutional responsibility. They were not deterred in carrying out the will of the people, and they were not stopped from doing what was right. I thank them for doing their job amidst chaos, violence, and danger to themselves, and certifying the results of the election of our next president and vice president. But I thank all the members who were there.
President Trump's continued refusal to accept the election results without producing credible evidence of a rigged election has started a fire that has threatened to burn down our democracy. This incendiary speech, when he gave preceding the march that he gave to the protesters, served only to fan those flames, encouraging the mob behavior that ensued. We're shameful, and all Americans must denounce them, even those Americans who feel incorrectly that Donald Trump won. And so as has been with every single presidential election in American history, it is time to accept the election results, to accept the will of the people, so we may begin to move forward and we may begin to heal. We need to come together as a people. Governor Mike DeWine speaking on Thursday, the day after the Capitol was stormed. Ohio Republican Congressman Jim Jordan of Urbana was one of those who was opposed to the counting of electoral votes for Joe Biden in some of the disputed states. He had five minutes on the floor to talk about it prior to the voting. Here's Congressman Jordan's take on the election. Madam Speaker, Americans instinctively know there was something wrong with this election. During the campaign, Vice President Biden would do an event and he'd get 50 people at the event. President Trump at just one rally gets 50,000 people. President Trump increases vote with African-Americans, increases vote with Hispanic Americans, won 19 of 20 bellwether counties, won Ohio by eight, Iowa by eight, and Florida by three. Got 11 million more votes than he did in 2016, and House Republicans won 27 of 27 toss-up races. But somehow, the guy who never left his house wins the election? 80 million Americans, 80 million of our fellow citizens, Republicans and Democrats, have doubts about this election. And 60 million people 60 million Americans think it was stolen. But Democrats say, no problem, no worries, everything's fine. We asked for an investigation. We asked Chairman Nadler, Chairwoman Maloney for an investigation. They said no. Wouldn't want to investigate something that half the electorate has doubts about. It's just the presidency of the United States. Why? Why not one single investigation? Why not even one single hearing over the last nine weeks in the United States House of Representatives? Why? Because all the Democrats care about is making sure President Trump isn't president. For four and a half years, that's all they've cared about. July 31st, 2016, before he was elected the first time, Jim Comey's FBI takes out the insurance policy, opens an investigation on the president based on nothing. May 17, 2017, Bob Mueller named special counsel. Two years, they investigate the Russia hoax. 19 lawyers, 40 agents, and $40 million of taxpayer money for nothing. December 18, 2019, Democrat House members vote to impeach President Trump based on an anonymous whistleblower with no firsthand knowledge who was biased against the president and who worked for Joe Biden. But none of that worked. As hard as they tried, none of that worked. They threw everything they had at him. So what'd they do next? They changed the rules. They changed the election law, and they did it in an unconstitutional fashion. And that's what we're gonna show over the next several hours of debate. The Constitution is clear as, as uh, Whip Scalise just said. State legislatures and only state legislatures set election law. In Arizona, the law says voter registration ends on October 5th. Democrats said, we don't care what the law says. 
They went to a court, got an Obama-appointed judge to extend it 18 days. No debate, as Steve talked about. No debate, no discussion. He just did it. Pennsylvania, same thing. Pennsylvania law says mail-in ballots have to be in by 8 p.m. Election Day. Democrat Supreme Court said, nope, we're going to extend it. Election Day doesn't end on Tuesday now. They took it to Friday. Extended the election three days. Not the legislature. Partisan Supreme Court. Pennsylvania law says mail-in ballots require signature verification. Democrat Secretary of State said, nope, I'm going to decide by myself that it doesn't for 2.6 million ballots. Pennsylvania law says mail-in ballots can't be processed until Election Day. Some counties said no. And you can imagine which counties they were. Democrat-run counties said no and allowed ballots to be cured and fixed before Election Day. They did an in-run around the Constitution in every state that Republicans will object to today, every single one. It was a pattern. It was their template. They did it in Arizona. They did it in Georgia. They did it in Michigan. They did it in Pennsylvania. They did it in Nevada. They did it in Wisconsin. And yet some of our members, some members say, don't worry about it. We shouldn't do anything. Just let it go. It was just six states who violated the Constitution. What if it's 10 states next time? What if it's 15? What if in 2024, 2028, it's 26 states? What if it's half the states do an end run around the Constitution clearly spells out? We, we are the final check and balance. The authority rests with us, the United States Congress, the body closest to the American people, right where the founders wanted it. We should do our duty. We should object to and, 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 and vote for this objection to the Arizona electors. Congressman Jim Jordan, a Republican from Urbana, throwing his support behind the objection of voting results in several states. Neil Armstrong waited six hours and 39 minutes to step onto the surface of the moon. Jackie Robinson waited 20 months to play his first game with the Brooklyn Dodgers. And even DiCaprio had to wait 22 years to win an Oscar. You can wait until your destination. Don't text and drive. Visit StopTextStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council. We are advocates. We are defenders. We are champions. And friends. We are the Association of Zoos and Aquariums. 230 accredited members employing thousands. All dedicated to the care and conservation of Earth's precious wildlife. Sea turtles. African penguins. California condors. Cheetahs. And countless endangered species that are close to extinction. See for yourself at aza.org slash join us. Or at an AZA accredited zoo and aquarium today. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV. Here's Tracy Townsend from her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. Hundreds of thousands of COVID-19 vaccine doses are in Ohio right now, but the governor says there needs to be a faster pace for distributing them. 
Plus, the governor updates guidance on when to quarantine school children. The Ohio Federation of Teachers president reacts to that change. For the first time in the history, 50 years of existence for the Congressional Black Caucus, you can watch it live on TV. Congresswoman Joyce Beatty's big moment as she's sworn in as the Congressional Black Caucus chair. We thank you for joining us for Face the State this morning. I'm Tracy Townsend. Hundreds of thousands of COVID-19 vaccines in Ohio. The state health department tells us Ohio received nearly 530,000 doses by the end of 2020. Now this week, more than 96,000 doses of Moderna's vaccine will be delivered, along with 98,000 second doses of Pfizer's vaccine. Governor Mike DeWine says he wants to see these vaccines distributed as quickly as possible. We can't control how fast the vaccine comes into the state of Ohio. And we know that there's a scarcity. Uh, we know that we have two streams coming in, Pfizer, Moderna. Uh, we hope those streams get wider uh, as, the, as the weeks go on. And we certainly hope there are more streams that are coming on, uh, more drug companies that will develop uh, vaccines that are ready to go. So what we hope uh, will occur, what we think will occur, is that that will go out like that and that we'll have more opportunities every single week with more uh, of the vaccine coming in into the state of Ohio. Columbus Public Health Commissioner Dr. Mashika Roberts says the city is running into more hesitancy than she expected from first responders and frontline workers getting the vaccine. I will tell you that it's been a bit of a disappointment um, the last seven, eight days that we've had the vaccine, that many people who we thought would be eager to get the vaccine have been reluctant. What we've heard from some people is, I want the vaccine, I just don't want to be first. So I'm very optimistic that we're going to see more and more people. So I would encourage people um, that if they have questions about the vaccine, go to reliable sources to get the answers. But when your turn comes up to get the vaccine, raise your hand. One point of hesitancy comes from people with underlying health conditions. Many say they aren't really sure of how the vaccine will affect them. Stephanie Stanovich took those concerns to an expert. This is my daughter, Madison, and she just turned 15 years old. It's been a year full of worry for them. Madison has two pretty serious medical conditions. She has juvenile idiopathic arthritis. Her immune system goes overboard and attacks her body. She's on medication. She gets plasma every other day at home and a big infusion once a month for her autoimmune disease. She gets the flu usually once a year and ends up hospitalized for it. Um, so COVID has been really scary. It's been a little stressful. She also has um, a bleeding disorder called von Willebrand's disease. With the COVID-19 vaccine now in the picture. I want to get the vaccine because I'm going to keep, I'm the only one that really leaves the house and I want to keep her as safe as possible. But mom, Amy Fouts, questions whether or not Madison should get it. Dr. Joseph Gestaldo with Ohio Health says right now the Moderna vaccine isn't authorized or recommended for anyone under the age of 18. Pfizer under the age of 16. For anyone older, Gustavo suggests weighing risk and benefits on whether you should get it or not with your health care provider. We know that people with weakened immune systems do, may not mount 
a immune response to the same level as somebody with a normal immune system. As far as underlying medical conditions. The only true do not receive the vaccine guidance is if you have a severe allergic reaction, what we call anaphylaxis, to any of the components in the vaccine. The doctor says everyone's immune system is different. And I think for many situations and many patients, there's more of a benefit of getting a vaccine than the, than the risk of getting COVID-19. So for right now, I'm just going to keep asking the questions. Reporting in Columbus, Stephanie Stanovich, 10TV News. Dr. Gustavo says people with diabetes, lung and heart conditions, and people living with HIV were included in the vaccine trials. People receiving chemotherapy, transplant patients, people with autoimmune diseases were not included. Regulators in the United Kingdom approved the Oxford AstraZeneca coronavirus vaccine. This is the second vaccine authorized for use in the UK. Right now in Ohio, the vaccine is available to those who are the most at risk because of their jobs. But when more doses are available, could you be required to get it? And could you be fired if you don't? David Lipman verifies. Lots of people are uncertain about the COVID-19 vaccines for a variety of reasons. And many have asked us if they can be forced to get the shots. Our sources are Texas Governor Greg Abbott, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, and the Americans with Disabilities Act. The Governor Abbott said on December 8th during a summit for Operation Warp Speed that the government won't make anyone get vaccinated. In the state of Texas, uh, uh, people cannot be required uh, to take a vaccine. Uh, most people want to, and there's going to be such a high demand for it uh, that the, uh, all of the supply will be used up. Uh, but I just want to make sure my fellow Texans know that we know uh, that you are not going to be forced to take a vaccine against your will. But while the government won't require a vaccination, your employer can. The Americans with Disabilities Act allows an employer to, quote, establish qualification standards that will exclude individuals who pose a direct threat, i.e. a significant risk of substantial harm to the health or safety of the individual or of others, end quote. Exclude here means keep the worker out of the building. If refusing a vaccine poses a risk that you would infect coworkers or customers, the company has the right to keep you away. The law also says businesses must make a reasonable accommodation for someone who refuses, such as working remotely, unless the change would cause undue harm to the business. A hospital, for instance, might not be able to accommodate a nurse or doctor who declines a flu shot, since infecting patients could cause illness or death, and patients have to be examined in person. So it could fire an employee who refuses. According to guidance issued December 16th from the EEOC, a COVID-19 vaccine is treated the same way. Whether they refuse a vaccine because of medical reasons or religious reasons, if there's no reasonable accommodation possible, the employee might be let go. So we can verify. If you have a job where you're around other people, your company might be able to fire you if you don't get vaccinated. But if you have a claim or question you want us to verify, you can email me or reach out on social media. And 10TV has a team of journalists working both in front of the camera and behind the scenes to make sure all of your vaccine questions get answered. You see us there. We will also track the vaccine as it makes its way to more people here in our state. And we're, we're going to report to you any issues that arise. Governor Mike DeWine wants to get kids back in the classroom and keep them there. That's why he changed the guidance for student quarantines. The state now says students will no longer have to quarantine for two weeks if they are exposed to a positive COVID-19 case. This is because of a study that shows students in classrooms are no more at risk to contract the virus as long as they are socially distanced 
and wearing masks. Our schools have been doing a tremendous job of implementing robust safety measures. When they're applied daily across the state, our schools represent the safest place for most of our students. When you couple this with the fact that teachers and other staff will soon be eligible to receive the COVID-19 vaccine, we really believe we have a solid package. As expected, there is mixed reaction to this change. Some teachers are all for it. Schools have been a safe place for our kids to be, so quarantining kids, putting them out for 14 days at a time when they're healthy is a, is a big stress on the system. It's a stress for families, it's a stress for our teachers, and it's a stress for um, our students who are really struggling with that mental health component. Some education leaders wonder if it's the safest option. 10TV's Christopher Frost talked with the Ohio Federation of Teachers president about the change. Governor DeWine announced quarantining for students and teachers exposed to COVID-19 is no longer required. When Ohio Federation of Teachers president Melissa Cropper heard, she was confused. Immediate reaction to that was, obviously, we want to follow CDC guidelines. And when we hear that there's a relaxation of anything from CDC guidelines, it's going to cause us some immediate concern. She tweeted following the announcement, her main concern, loose guidelines guidelines which could jeopardize the safety of all in the classroom. But a conversation with DeWine's office brought clarity. What the governor is saying and what his medical experts are saying is that when schools put the other safety protocols in place, that we actually are creating very safe environments for our students, which means that we don't have to be as concerned about quarantining. Protocols like masks, partitions, and cleaning procedures, all which must be strictly enforced for this looser quarantine guideline to be applied. That's not the only announcement DeWine made that brings changes for schools. As part of the next phase in our vaccination plan, adults, adults working in schools uh, where there are children, will have the option to receive the vaccine. Cropper says while this is a step forward, it's too soon to tell what this could mean for this semester. I get concerned about setting deadlines because I think then that, that kind of forces people to start shortcutting on things. In Columbus, Krista Frost, 10TV News. There is now a new strain of COVID-19 in the United States. It hasn't been reported in Ohio yet. What the Columbus Public Health Commissioner has to say about that. When someone gets COVID-19, epidemiologists and other health experts use contact tracing to find out who might be at risk. Some people claim that's a violation of their HIPAA rights. But is it? The Verify team works to get you answers. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. The updated COVID-19 county risk map shows the spread of the virus in Ohio. Nearly every county is red or at that level three emergency, meaning there's very high exposure and spread of the virus. The Ohio Department of Health says while the state is no longer seeing sharp increases in new cases and hospitalizations, a post-holiday spike is expected. Governor Mike DeWine extended the state's 10 p.m. curfew until January 23rd as a means of slowing the spread of the virus. You'll remember it was originally marked to end on January 2nd. And a reminder, this does not mean you can't go to and from work during curfew hours. It also does not apply to anyone who's having an emergency or needs to get medical care. You can still even go to get groceries, pick up carryout or drive through meals, and ordering for delivery is permitted. But serving food and drink within a restaurant must stop 
at 10 o'clock at night. The city of Columbus and Franklin County extended their respective stay-at-home advisories to coincide on January 23rd to match what's happening at the state level. Under this advisory, you should only leave home to go to work or school or to pick up essential needs such as medical care, groceries, medicine, and food. Now, you've probably been seeing those headlines about a new, more contagious strain of COVID-19. The Columbus Public Health Commissioner says while it hasn't been detected in Ohio just yet, she believes it's here. But she says this was expected. This is a virus, and so we know it can mutate. It's not surprising to us that it has mutated. Um, we feel pretty optimistic that the vaccine is still going to cover that mutated strain of this virus. Contact tracing plays a major role in tracking the spread of COVID-19. But there are claims that asking you about who you've been around is illegal. The Verify team takes that issue to the experts. The Verify team is here to separate fact from fiction throughout this pandemic. And we've received a lot of questions about contact tracing and your privacy. So let's verify, does contact tracing violate HIPAA laws? Our sources are Roger Severino, the director of the Office for Civil Rights, part of the Department of Health and Human Services, and attorney Ileana Peters, who specializes in data privacy and security. Both our sources say the answer here is no. The vast majority of entities that conduct contact tracing aren't actually covered by HIPAA. Peters says that HIPAA actually only applies to entities that take health insurance or offer pay related to health insurance, as well as the vendors that provide services to those entities, for example, hospitals and doctor's offices. Director Severino agrees and explains that those entities can share information with the CDC and public health authorities. Where there's an imminent threat to the health and safety of somebody, and when you have a very dangerous infectious disease, there are occasions where they can share that information for contact tracing purposes. So we can verify that no, our sources say that contact tracing is not in violation of HIPAA laws. With your Verify, I'm Evan Kozlov. Do you have something you want the Verify team to look into? Let us know. Just email verify at 10tv.com. 2020 ended with more than 170 homicides in Columbus, dozens above the previous record from 2017. Some leaders in the Linden community fear COVID may be to blame for that violence. 10TV's Krista Frost spoke with him about why. You have parents who are working, you know, two and three jobs to provide for their children. Um, you may have adult supervision that's not in the home to the same extent it would be in more affluent communities. Um, I think, you know, this this violence is really just a fruit of that root. But how do we stop it? Pastor of City of Grace Church Michael Young says leaders coming back to help their neighborhoods is one solution, but another organizations like We Are Linden. Uh, we just strive just to provide uh, a safe haven, a safe space. Uh, positive mindsets for the young people. Ralph Carter is trying to offer the youth from his neighborhood more options. They had a systematic um, afternoon. It was kind of like a prayer, tutoring, and basketball program that was going on. But he says COVID has made it hard to keep them on a positive path. Things like that are taken away or it's a certain cap on how many kids can be there, then that's where everything implodes. A young man that attended frequently passed away and it happened around the time and on the same day that he would have been at Oprah Gym. That young man was 17-year-old Major Harris III, who died in a shooting the week before Christmas. Carter is currently working with other Linden leaders to find solutions like creating his own rec center. But until that takes off, 
He makes house calls to remind them. I have lived here. I woke up here. I have fell off my bike. I have got my bike stolen. I have fought on these streets. I have did everything under the sun, and I'm still here, and you can too. In Columbus, Krista Frost, 10TV News. Carter is working on setting up other meetings for the youth, focusing on those in Linden. We have information at our website for how to get in touch with We Are Linden. All right, the coronavirus stimulus checks started going out last week. So you may want to check your bank account for that extra $600. Some of you may be expecting more, but how much more? Evan Koslov with our Verify team is checking into which dependents qualify for those extra dollars. All across the country, people have had their eyes locked on this building behind me, trying to figure out what Congress would do as far as COVID relief. On Sunday night, President Trump signed a bill that would, among other things, send $600 to adults with a qualifying income and an additional $600 for each dependent child. And this brings up an interesting question we've received from many viewers. What exactly is a dependent? Let's verify what dependents qualify for the $600 check and which do not. My name is Henry Grez from the AICPA. Here's one of our sources from the Association of International CPAs. We also looked at the text of the bill itself and some analysis from the IRS and the U.S. tax code. First, we should break down what it means to be a dependent. Grez explains that you need to pass two tests to be considered a dependent. There's the support test. The parent who's claiming you has to provide more than 50% of your support. You know, that would include food and lodging, tuition. And then there's the residency test. That child has to be living with you uh, more than 50% of the time. But just being a dependent doesn't mean your family's going to get a check. You had to be 16 years or younger on your parent or guardian's 2019 tax filings in order to be eligible. So if you're 17 or older and be, can be claimed as a dependent on your parents' return, you're not going to qualify for this additional $600. Now let's dive into a couple hypotheticals that I'm sure a lot of you parents out there are wondering. First, let's say that your child is 16 or younger, so they hit that age requirement, but they're off at boarding school. Do you get a check for them? That's considered a temporary absence, so that's they're still technically living with their parent. They have the right to claim you as a dependent. Okay, next question. Let's just say you had a baby in 2020. Do you get a check for them? Grez tells us that the answer is yes and no. You won't get $600 on your stimulus check for that new dependent, but you will get $600 when you file your 2020 tax return. So you won't get the $600 now, but come tax time, you should get it. Reporting here at the Capitol, Evan Kozloff with your Verify. Third District U.S. Representative Joyce Beatty was the leader of the 59-member Congressional Black Caucus, which will be the largest and possibly most influential caucus in the 117th Congress. We're going to have a brand that talks about our power, our message, and we're going to listen to the people. We have so many issues that we're still faced with, and because of COVID-19, we have three pandemics. Certainly, we know the healthcare side of it, but we also have an economic pandemic and a social injustice pandemic, and so all of that's going to be in the forefront of all of our work. So it sounds like you have your work cut out for you. That's a big three. I wanted to start with COVID, COVID because we've been reporting on $600 versus $2,000. Um, when you think of how people are struggling, both of those dollar amounts don't seem in many cases to be enough. 
Oh, you're absolutely right. When we look at businesses across America not being able to continue to employ their individuals, when you think of people not being able to feed their families or pay their rent, which has been huge when we look at right here in Ohio, 1.5 million people are at risk and some 30 million across the nation. So we have been fighting very hard to make sure that we could put some monies in for individuals to put additional dollars in the PPP program for small businesses to put childcare and education money and money in there actually for the coronavirus for vaccines. I mean, so much and still it's not enough, but just keep in mind how hard we had to fight. It has been seven months since the last stimulus package that we fought for as Democrats in the House. And here we are again. You also talked about um, social unrest, which, you know, we're watching what's happening here in Columbus. Well, the nation is with um, the killing of Andre Hill. What are your thoughts on the work that needs to be done there? Well, I think we still have to stand up. Uh, you know, clearly we just heard from our officials that the police officer has been terminated from his job. So maybe if we look at that as step one, it won't be bring back Andre Hill. It won't make his family and mother and wife and others be more comforted, but it will be a beginning for us to get justice. But, you know, in addition to Andre Hill, we have Casey Goodson, the 23-year-old, uh, putting keys in his door with three sandwiches in his head, also shot multiple times in his torso, in his back. Uh, so when I think about, and those are just a few, too many lives are being lost and we must continue to keep this up in the forefront. So I'm glad that you're asking me about it. I want to use my voice to make sure that I ask many others to join me, that we continue to fight against all of the injustices. And that's a good thing about the movement. It's a good thing about so many diverse individuals and groups coming together because it's those movements that makes us talk about this more. Congresswoman Beatty, we thank you all so much for being here with us today. Remember, if it affects you, your family, and Ohio, we're here to make sure those accountable face the state. That's again Tracy Townsend, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and joining me on the phone is Rob Sexton, who is the Legislative Affairs Director for the Buckeye Firearms Association. How are you? I'm good, Dave. How are you? Good. Thanks for talking to us. Tell us uh, briefly what the Buckeye Firearms Association is. Sure. Well, Buckeye Firearms Association is Ohio's premier defender of the Second Amendment. Uh, We work in the legislature, in the courts. Uh, and have members all across the state, and our our primary mission is the defense of gun rights in Ohio. And we're going to talk about legislation that was just signed by Governor, uh, I almost said Bob Taft. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> <Throwback>. <laughs> 
legislation that was just signed by uh, Governor Mike DeWine that puts Ohio in with the other states that have stand your ground laws. What does that mean? Well, in, in current law, Dave, you know, if someone attacks you in your own home, you've got a right to defend yourself. But when you are outside the home, uh, when you're being attacked or a family member is being attacked and you have a genuine fear for your life, the law has this odd phrase in there that you have a duty, an obligation, to seek avenues of retreat, to look for a place to hide or to run away. And, and, and that is an unjust burden to put on someone who's actually a victim of crime. So what this bill does is it removes that duty to retreat in all circumstances. So not just in your home, but anywhere you go, as long as you're somewhere you have a legal right to be. So I'm trying to think of, in terms of, uh, you know, where it might happen outside the home. If somebody is walking in a city down the street and gets the feeling somebody is kind of stalking them or following them, they might be able to turn to their gun as protection sooner than they would without this law? I don't think it's a matter of sooner, and it's not a matter of, you know, you feel like someone's following you. It is a, a genuine fear for your life. So let's say you're being, you know, you're being attacked at the ATM machine, or you're being accosted in the parking lot at the mall, uh, or something along those lines. So uh, in, in that situation, you, you would no longer have an obligation to, to, to run or to find a hiding place before you're allowed to defend yourself. And I think what everyone needs to consider is this is split-second stuff. You know, you're under duress, you're under attack, and to have a law that says, well, gee, while you're busy being attacked, we'd like you to consider your retreat options. It's, it's not just unjust, but it's also not realistic to the situation. But the scenarios that you're pointing out make it almost sound more like uh, the person with the gun who's being attacked is in danger of having the gun taken away from them. Um, and yet there's no spacing that's part of this law. No, I don't, I don't believe it's a matter of having your gun taken away from you. I think it's a matter of in, in, in the current situation, the very first thing law enforcement's going to examine is whether or not you took advantage of a potential avenue of retreat. And, and we're saying well, that's ridiculous. If you're being attacked, especially if you've got family members with you, loved ones with you, your first obligation is to protect yourself and your family. And that's where uh, removal of this added step uh, makes so much sense. You know, your attacker doesn't have the same hurdle to clear uh, before they do what they're going to do. And so this very same idea that you that you have a right to in your own home, you now would have anywhere. So does the legislation say then in the event you are being attacked, you can stand your ground? Well, what it does, you see, in current law, uh, it spells out the idea of when you have a duty to retreat and when you don't have a duty to retreat. And this just simply removes that item. It doesn't change one bit the standards of self-defense. So in other words, the very same attributes that you have to be where you're legally allowed to be, that you have to be in a genuine life-threatening situation. Uh, you, you cannot be connected with some sort of connecting crime. So in other words, a person can't try to rob someone and then you know, shoot the person they're robbing and claim they felt threatened all of a sudden. It's very clearly aimed at someone who is a victim. Talking with Rob Sexton, Legislative Affairs Director of the Buckeye Firearms Association, the belief that someone's life is in danger, is that further 
fleshed out in some sort of a, a description of what that means? Uh, well, it, it already exists in current law in, you know, in your home. So it's the very same type of, uh, of legal process. We didn't monkey with that. We didn't change that with this bill. It's, it's identical in those very same standards, which have been, boy, I don't know, litigated for more than 150 years in Ohio law remain the same. So we didn't lower the bar uh, in, in which you're allowed to defend yourself. Uh, we just simply removed the obligation that you, you have to look for opportunity to run. On uh, Monday, when the governor signed the bill, uh, House Minority Leader Amelia Sykes of Akron put out a statement that's uh, just, it's just one uh, paragraph. Let me read it to you real quick. Quote, only cowards would pass and sign a bill that's been proven to disproportionately harm black people. Only cowards would support a bill that allows people to shoot first and ask questions later. The blood of the lives lost from the signing and passage of this bill rests solely on those who supported it. What's your reaction to that? Well, it's, it's completely false, and, and also it's hyperbole into a debate that, uh, uh, that is really unfortunate. I don't believe that this type of law is disproportionate on anyone except for someone who is attacking someone. Uh, and I, I really hate to see that kind of language injected into the debate. Do you think this has the potential to reduce gun violence? Does it ever show to do that, or would that just be a, a, a sidebar of this that, that doesn't really apply? You know, lots of times when opponents of this bill talk about it, they bring up, you know, how is this going to impact gun crime? And the truth is, gun activity by criminals is not connected to my right of self-defense. So I, I, I can't tell you that I think, you know, there's going to be less gun crime, and criminals are going to do what criminals do. On the other hand, victims of crime now have at least an ability to defend themselves without being worried that they're going to have to get a lawyer and take a second mortgage out on their house to explain why they defended themselves, uh, you know, and didn't run or try to hide. So I, I don't think it's connected with uh, the epidemic of gun violence that we see in some of our cities. I think it's more connected with just protecting people. I was reading some comments, uh, you know, at the bottom of newspaper articles. Sometimes those are, are far more, at least, enjoyable than the <laughs> than the newspaper articles themselves. Uh, one person said that they believed that people who carry concealed weapons, especially outside of their homes, uh, you know, in cities or wherever, in their opinion, tended to be either more aggressive or paranoid people who might be more likely to react in an aggressive way than somebody who doesn't carry a gun might, and therefore they, they're the wrong person to be giving this sort of law to, to give them a little more leeway. Well, that's, that's not a factual statement by any means. You know, people who are opponents of gun rights, you we go back, you mentioned Governor Taft accidentally a minute ago. Of course, that's, you know, back when the first concealed carry law was passed, he was governor. And people like, uh, people like the person who made that comment were saying, oh, there's going to be violence in the streets and the OK Corral. And we haven't found that to be the case. In fact, we found concealed license holders to be entirely responsible, just like we knew they would be. And over the years, there have been expansions to the places that you're allowed to carry. You know, the first law was very cautious and had a lot of unnecessary restrictions to it. And that's been gradually opened over the years. But every time that there was another opening, there'd be the same old worn-out diatribe, you know, that it's the legal gun owner that we have to fear. 
And the truth is, stats have just never proven that out. People who own firearms are law-abiding people. They respect the law. Uh, I myself am a concealed handgun license uh, holder. I carry quite a bit. Uh, I can tell you this firsthand. The last thing I would ever want to do is to use that firearm. Uh, so, so I just I think the comment is just misplaced and obviously just someone who's just not familiar with people like me that carry firearms. I also remember, though, back during the debates in the early days of this when the gun rights advocates would say there's never been an, an example of somebody with a concealed carry permit uh, accidentally killing somebody, or I don't remember exactly what the claim was, but it was something that was that seemed awfully hard to believe. And, and even since then, We've had a gun instructor in an Ohio instructor course who's accidentally shot somebody. Well, I mean, I think unfortunate accidents happen even, you know, even far beyond, you know, firearms. I mean, like I'm a hunter, for example, and accidents in hunting are extremely rare, but they do happen, uh, and they're unfortunate. But I think the overwhelming evidence, not just in Ohio, but across the entire United States, is the concealed handgun license uh, holders are extremely good actors. They're 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 good people. They're they behave legally, and, and you know the rest of society has nothing to fear. Uh, I think where the fear in my mind comes in is we just experienced a summer where there was lawlessness in the streets, where there was violence in the streets, where where law enforcement openly said, you know, we're not able to control this street, or we're not able to control this situation. You know, you're kind of on your own. And I think that kind of lawlessness is appalling. Uh, and we we saw people, you know, their cars, their windows bashed out of their cars, in some cases drug out of their cars. And, you know, so, and those are the kind of people that my heart goes out to because that would be a terrifying situation. And this duty to retreat doesn't just apply to firearms. You know, that, that person in the vehicle who is surrounded by a mob of people and they're bashing the windows out of their car and so they... You know, they give the gas to get out of the situation, and somebody gets bumped or knocked down. The next thing you know, there's a discussion about whether they should be charged. Well, gosh, I mean, at what point are we going to enforce the law? And, you know, I think this past summer really gave fuel to the idea that it's absurd that I'm expected to analyze the situation enough to figure out if I can run or hide uh, when, when split seconds when my life is in danger are going by. And I think that's the real root cause of this bill um, and why I think the legislature agreed it was necessary. Talking with Rob Sexton, Legislative Affairs Director of Buckeye Firearms Association, there's a, also a part of this new law that protects uh, churches and nonprofit organizations, right? Yes. In fact, that what you're talking about is the original language that was in the bill before the repeal of duty to retreat was inserted. So in current law, that immunity exists for businesses. You know, if somebody commits an act of, uh, of violence that's unconnected to my business on my premises, you know, there's immunity for me being sued by people who are involved in the shooting for somehow being responsible for it. But the law didn't apply that same immunity to nonprofits, including churches, uh, for example. So uh, Senate Bill 175 in its original form just simply clarified that that immunity exists for nonprofits as well as for non-profit or uh, uh, for-profit businesses. 
The mayor of uh, Dayton, Nan Whaley, uh, spoke out against this signing by the governor and, and expressed disappointment in him because he had come to Dayton after the mass shooting and talked about, you know, the, the crowd was chanting, do something, and he, he pledged to do something. He's still trying to do something, but Whaley saw this as kind of going in the wrong direction for him. And he still, during his coronavirus updates, talks about wanting str- uh, stronger background checks, that type of thing. What is your take on Governor DeWine? Well, I, I, you know, my take is that he kept his promise. You know, when he was running for governor, he committed in writing, he committed publicly, he committed in private conversations that if the, the repeal of duty to retreat was put on his desk, he would sign it. Uh, his running mate, of course, uh, uh, you know, a Daytonian, he made the same commitment. Uh, and so we were counting on him to keep that promise, and, and he did. So we're very happy that he did. As far as Mayor Whaley goes, you know, Dayton's actually my hometown. And, uh, I, you know, I live in Columbus area now but uh, for many years, but I grew up in Dayton, and, you know, there was a time when people just wouldn't even go downtown. It was just not a safe place to go. And so over the last 20 years, there's been a lot of investment into downtown, including their minor league ballpark, which is really, really nice. But over this summer, you know, with the type of violence that we saw in the cities, including Dayton, you know, you'd have to ask yourself why anybody would want to go down there as long as they don't have a handle on things. And so my thought to Mayor Whaley is, why are, you know, why is it that your solution is to target law-abiding gun owners when what, you, what needs to happen is you need to get control of your own streets? Because people need to feel safe. And, and I think that's, that's the biggest challenge facing her for Dayton uh, or us here in Columbus. Talking with Rob Sexton, he's the Legislative Affairs Director of the Buckeye Firearms Association. The ongoing uh, process of people who, who want to have a concealed carry permit to get, you know, their safety courses and certification, has all that been disrupted by the pandemic? Uh, yes, uh, we, were, we were fortunate to, uh, you know, to secure some extensions and renewals and that sort of thing, but it, it absolutely was affected. Um, you had sort of a double hit. First, the, the pandemic itself dramatically slowed down the abilities of many county sheriffs to process permits and renewals and the like. And then you had, uh, with the violence in the streets, you had a surge in people wanting to take the courses. So you had a, a, an uptick in just people interested in doing it. And together that caused a, a fairly big backlog uh, that we've worked to address in several ways. The legislature extended uh, your renewal period so that you know people who uh, uh, who currently have licenses don't wind up with an expired license even though they can't get an appointment. Uh, we also uh, now allow people to go to any county to get their license renewed. It used to be just your own home county and the ones that are right next door, and so that would alleviate some of the backlog. Um, but, uh, you know, I think the process is digging its way out, but it, it was definitely challenged there, you know, around mid-year. If uh, folks want information about concealed carry or, you know, how to get certified and uh, just what your association's up to, how do they find out? Well, I think probably the quickest place is to just, uh, you know, look up Buckeye Firearms Association on the Internet. Uh, and uh, our website is a comprehensive uh, place to go, not just to look at laws, but also for various training courses and that sort of thing. And and we can be found at 
www.buckeyefirearms.org. Okay, interesting topic. It's uh, certainly never going to run out of different avenues to uh, inspect, you know? <laughs> nope, <laughs> I don't think we will, but I, I appreciate the chance to talk with you and uh, you know, let me know if you'd ever like to talk again. We're available. Great. Thanks, Rob. Sure appreciate it. Thanks, Dave. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan, heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM. That's 1460 ESPN Columbus. And Sunday morning at 7 on WBNSFM. Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective. <laughs>